If Canadians are talking about it, chances are it's a conversation piece. The Walrus's new podcast features leaders in every field from healthcare to sports to science to fiction, and we're delivering their perspectives straight to you every week on the Conversation Piece podcast. Subscribe today at thewalrus.ca slash podcasts. Hey, buddy. Hey. What's up to? What's going on? I'm just watching the city council meeting. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's um, pretty congenial, actually. So it's like online... Uh, and everyone in council is is going in virtually. Yeah, it's like a massive Zoom chat. Yeah. Sorry, um, can you turn it down a bit? I can't really sure. hear you. Yeah, they're all in their little windows, like a game show, and uh, yeah, they're voting on various things. It, it's been surprisingly uh, productive um, for cool. the second time they, in a row. Um, did they do the uh, bike lane vote thing? They did. Yeah, approved massive uh, amount. I mean, for Toronto, massive amounts yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Uh, of active transportation. Cool. Yeah, it's it's really been a while since I've sat down and watched these meetings. Um, you know, with with great interest. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, you're a captive audience. Yeah, um, and I think that is going to be uh, our episode for this month. It's going to be a lot of okay. that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you know what order you want to do things in? I'm thinking like Gord, Kristen, and then the uh, Austin audio essay. Yeah, I'm thinking exactly that. Cool. But um, to do that, do you want to get us started? Oh, oh I got to do uh, that. <laughs> eh? uh, you know, I'm cutting like almost all of this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh yeah, I might as well. Uh this is Spacing Radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in my literal closet in the sweltering heat, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. On this episode, we have two Toronto City Councillors, Gord Perks and Kristen Wong-Tam. We touch on housing, homelessness, a new deal for cities, and new space for cyclists and pedestrians. And we have a special audio essay from Spacing Senior Editor Todd Harrison. We've got a lot of ground to cover in this episode about how the city is navigating the COVID pandemic, so please, stand by. The end of April saw the first meeting of Toronto City Council as a whole since February, due to the COVID outbreak. I asked Councillor Gord Perks about the job during a state of emergency, virtual council meetings, and a plan to expedite modular housing construction for people in need. Well, uh, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. The the things I'm used to doing, I can't do. Uh, I can't have a town hall meeting with anybody. Uh, And, you know, a Zoom meeting is no substitute for sitting in a room with 50 people and trying to work out a problem. And because of the uh, state of emergency, council committees and decision-making is, you know, all different. There aren't committee meetings and the decision-making is uh, the senior public service and the mayor. Right. So 
So I've, I've now got an entirely different job than the one I had before. Um, but you got to one remote council meeting under your belt. What was that like? Because we're not physically in the room, you can't wander over and talk to somebody and say, hey, I'd like to change the way we're approaching this issue. Could we try this? Um, that just wasn't possible. Right. So as a result, most of us who had something to say had conversations ahead of time, and uh, it all led to a single united motion that the mayor moved on behalf of everybody so to a very large extent it it was not a working meeting but a a a meeting to sort of ratify what everybody knew we were going to do and that's a deeply unsatisfying way to make decisions right There, there were some really interesting motions uh even given the the kind of odd circumstances of it. And uh, the one I wanted to ask you about was uh, a plan to expedite a number of uh, modular housing units to the tune of, uh, I think, 110 to start with. Um, this was part of a, an emergency uh, COVID response, but its inception started uh, earlier uh, sometime, I think, summer of last year. Yeah. The, the idea of modular housing has been around for a little while. Vancouver has done some pilot work on it and our new director of the housing secretariat uh, actually comes from Vancouver and so it led a lot of that work so there's some familiarity and some ex- some expectation of doing it in Toronto and they've evidently got a couple of sites that are in final due diligence and when that's done they're going to announce those sites and go forward with two pilot projects Right, and uh, it was kind of remarkable uh, in that there was a, a brief uh, uh, attempt to kind of uh, kick it down the uh, to to some in, indetermined uh, time later, uh, but that that was voted down, and, and so the actual motion passed uh, with just one dissenting voice. That's uh, kind of unusual. Uh, a lot of times when I'm watching uh, council meetings uh, for any given motion, it seems like a, a lot of support. Uh, is is behind this and the spirit of it, uh, you know, housing people, uh, vulnerable people, especially uh, during this pandemic. But uh, you you did express some misgivings uh, during during the meeting, even though you you voted in favor for it. Um, So I I was hoping you could kind of unpack what are these misgivings? Uh, Sure. Uh, First, um, to, I think a, a line has to be drawn it's it's not exactly emergency housing for people during the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, it will still take a little while to get it constructed it's not you know this isn't uh the same as the city leasing a hotel or buying a vacant apartment building and housing people permanently this is for housing a little ways down the road i think the goal is september sometime well that's maybe optimistic I think that's a bit optimistic, but we'll see. Um, I do have misgivings. Mm -hmm. As I said, during the council meeting, um, I'm prepared to go along with the idea of a pilot, but I think there are some very important questions that need to be answered before we go wholesale into uh, the construction of modular housing for providing relief to the homeless and housing people who need supports. The first and most important one is what is the long-term quality of this housing? What we don't want to do 
is to build something that's only going to last 25, 30, 35 years and is going to have problems uh, with maintenance during that period. Right. So much of the problem that we have with our public housing company is an awful lot of the housing included there originally comes from the Ontario housing company that was downloaded onto us. And in many cases, the construction quality was, well, subpar, to put it politely. Mm-hmm. And uh, the living conditions people are in uh, or have been in have been poor. And the cost of maintaining them has skyrocketed and has eaten up an awful lot of the money that we could have been using to house other people. Right. And finally, in, in many of those uh complexes we've had to abandon them walk away and and reconstruct them all together because they were unsalvageable right so what we don't want to do is to put all of our eggs in a in a basket that's just going to create that problem again in 30 years and 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 to that point for the first 110 units the city has decided to go with a, a single source contract for the construction of them uh, and and the reasoning being that the, the mayor gave during the meeting was that this uh, uh, th- this company has experience in Vancouver building the some six hundred plus units there, um, and and there's a certain logic to that if we're trying to advance timelines and, and get this built as rapidly as possible. Um, but I do I, I did make note that all mention that I can find of the six hundred plus units in Vancouver uh, call them temporary modular units. And the the wording of the motion, and maybe you can explain this. Uh, the the wording of the motion in in Toronto uh, calls them permanent. So I was, I was wondering if you could explain that distinction. I I wish I could. Okay. Um, this is the thing. Nobody has experience with this kind of modular housing over the long term, mm-hmm. and no one knows how this kind of housing will succeed over. 30, 50, or 100 years of Canadian winters. We just don't know that. Nobody knows that. We also don't know if the way they're snapped together is going to be something that's easy to repair 30, 50, or 100 years from now. Will people still make those parts? We don't know. Mm -hmm. So if you construct it as temporary, sort of transition from here to there, you can imagine that not being a problem. But if you're saying, no, no, we're going to build these and these will become, you know, housing units the same way that uh, any other not-for-profit or co-op or municipally owned housing is supposed to operate, we're putting an awful lot of risk on the, on the next generation of people who have to worry about housing. And that's not something I want to do because the record is quite poor that, uh, we allow conditions to deteriorate. We argue about who's going to pay to fix it. And in many cases, we simply have to tell people that the homes they grew up in are going to be demolished and they have to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that's a horrible process. So my view has has been, you know, there's an old saying engineers have, fast, cheap, or good. Pick two. Right. And and what that means is if you if you want it done quickly and you want good quality, you're going to pay top dollar. And to my mind, it is repugnant to say we're going to sacrifice quality because you're poor. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, poor people deserve homes that they know are not going to leak or have problems with the electricity and have to be demolished in 30 years because that, that becomes their neighborhood, their home, just like anybody else's. Right. If, if the private market had shown that, uh, you know, people who could afford to own their own homes or their own condo units or pay a high rent were rushing to move into these things and we had a lot of experience, I might not have these concerns. How much depends on the operator? Because that was part of the motion as well, is that uh, we've identified who will be constructing it. The sites will be identified based on what kind of supports are around there, access to transit, that sort of thing. But uh, the operator will be a nonprofit housing organization. Yeah. Depending on who's named, would that alleviate some of your concerns if it's a... No, not really, because the the concerns I have have to do with the longevity of the physical building and the ability to maintain it over time right um the the fact that there there will be a non-profit or uh operator uh just raises two other points the first is if it turns out that these are more expensive to maintain after they've had a couple decades wear on them the not-for-profit will you know really struggle to be able to deal with that so we would be handing a, a non-profit a potential liability mm-hmm. that's worth worrying about. The second point is if you've been around housing for a while, you'll know that, uh, if, a, at the end of the day, the buck stops with the city, if the nonprofit runs into trouble with management or, or their finances, we're the housing manager and we have to step in and, and take on the responsibility at the end of the day. Right. But misgivings aside, you did support this in principle at least. So, uh, going forward, you know, what can the city do? How can how can we ensure that we get the most out of this pilot project? My view is that until it can be proven to everyone's satisfaction that mm. there is a, a long-term strategy for maintenance and that these are viable over the long term, which nobody has experience with, at least with uh, this supplier, that we limit it to a small number of units. So if there's a problem, it's a it's a manageable problem and it doesn't overwhelm us the way that the backlog of repairs at Toronto Community Housing has overwhelmed us for 25 years. And going broader, uh, as you say, this this isn't really going to address uh, uh, vulnerable populations uh, during this pandemic in the here and now. And you say maybe this September timeline is a, a little bit too ambitious anyway. Speaking to right now, the city's response to people in the shelter system, uh, to vulnerable communities. You know, d- down the street from my front door, is we have people living in tents. We, we yes. have people working with vulnerable communities saying that social distancing is not happening in the shelter system. And I'm talking to you the day that news came out that there's been the first confirmed homeless death um, due to the pandemic. So uh, what, in your view, has been the city's response and, and what needs to happen still? I think the most important thing to keep in mind is what the COVID crisis has done in a number of different sectors is show where the system wasn't working. It's mm-hmm. shown us that our management of long-term care facilities was not working and was vulnerable to these, these terrible outbreaks and all this tragedy. Similarly, our shelter system was not working. Several of us on council, myself, Councillor Wong Tam, and, and others, have been trying to get the city to 
take emergency action on our, our shelter system for years. And uh, the mayor and other members of council have refused to do that. Now that uh, the pandemic has, has hit, we've discovered the consequence of that, which is that we cannot house safely people who are homeless or temporarily in need of, of housing from the city in a safe way. Mm-hmm. And you can't fix that in a week or five weeks. What the city has done, I am proud of, which is to go to empty hotels, empty apartment buildings, and try to do deals to turn this into possibly permanent housing. And we've got a little bit of money from the federal and provincial governments, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we need to do. During the council meeting, I did ask staff, does the federal government have the power to expropriate any of these empty buildings? And the answer is, long story short, yes, with provincial cooperation. Right. And I think the city and the federal and provincial governments should simply be moving to expropriate these empty buildings and turn them into permanent housing. And I guess as a final thought, uh, when we get back to normal, such as it was, is there a way that we maintain the lessons that we've learned at a great cost uh, during this pandemic? I always point people to uh, the the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. During the Great Depression, we had a, a prior to the Great Depression, what we think of now as social services and housing was largely delivered by charities, often religious charities. It's where things like Children's Aid Societies and the United Way come from, actually. But when the Great Depression hit, it was apparent that that system, which was administered municipally, couldn't handle the, the demands. It wasn't a good enough system. Mm-hmm. So the federal government uh, took action. They created, out of thin air, unemployment insurance, what we now call EI. And they also created, for the first time, a federal role in providing housing to uh, people who'd been pushed to the social margins and, and were living in poverty. I think we're at a moment like that now where we need a, a realignment of responsibilities and uh, a reimagination of the role of the federal government in providing supports so that people who go into the shelter system are there briefly mm-hmm. before we arrange permanent and high-quality housing for them, where our public health system is robust enough that we can prevent outbreaks in in congregate settings like long-term care facilities where other municipal systems, and here I'd include transit and our role in, in providing childcare are not so dependent on user fees. Right. This is a moment where we either realign those responsibilities and have a much more robust federal in investment in them so that people have a good quality of life and are resilient in a moment like this, or we fail and the tragedy will repeat.
Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam's ward includes areas where many people are street-involved and have been among the hardest hit by the pandemic. I talked to her about the city's response, the need for new funding for cities from higher orders of government, and the emerging active TO spaces. I wanted to start by uh, asking you, uh, I, I managed to watch the, uh, the first sort of state of emergency council meeting. It's, it's maybe one of the first council meetings in a long time I actually tried to watch, uh, you know, from, from beginning to end. Uh, so I wanted to ask you what, what that was like, because I, it seemed kind of successful and, and sort of oddly congenial uh, compared to uh, regular meetings. Mm-hmm. And uh, and none of that is by accident. All of it was designed from the smooth uh, technical execution uh, right down to the, the the feeling of unity on council. Um, um, I think that it also had everything to do with the fact that we needed to to let Torontonians, let people who reside in the city, who rely on the leadership of uh, city council, to know that that we were number one unified in our approach to uh, conquering uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, maintaining uh, people's livelihoods and protecting them and their lives is critical to to everyone on council. So I think it, it was very easy to to stay on track uh, there uh, because that's how people were feeling. Um, simply because we hadn't necessarily uh, met as council as a whole since March, I, I think that's why you were seeing so much unity. It's just is that people just realize the pandemic is so much bigger than all of us putting the partisanship aside and getting to work was critically important. And the meeting came after about a month of uh, the mayor having emergency powers, uh, almost almost unilateral. So I'm wondering, was that meeting the first chance for council as a whole to uh, add some direction to how the city is going to be governed during this pandemic? Uh, so yes, it is and was the first time the council was able to meet as a whole, as a whole, and recognizing that the mayor had declared the state of emergency at the end of uh, the third week of March, you know we had we had never done that before in in the city. So I think we were also trying to understand what does the what is what is the role of the city councilor and city council in the state of emergency when everything is all of a sudden, uh, you know, taken up to the um, emergency operations center. So there is obviously very capable division divisional leadership and staff that are now uh, you know at that table they make executive decisions without necessarily consulting with counselors there isn't the same type of government oversight that you would have when you have public deputations going through the standing committees and then ultimately a big council vote so we are all in this new environment of of literally handing over uh, our powers uh, hoping that that the work that government would have done in the years leading up to developing policies and how we would respond quickly and nimbly uh, in emergencies, in crisis, would then come to fruition and, and bear fruit. I think the challenge of, um, of handing over power, which also means you hand over political oversight, you hand over public input, uh, is that, um, you know, things can go wrong. Uh, in the in the hands of someone who is actually uh, not uh, capable of of being responsible with that type of authoritarian um, control, there have been hiccups along the way, and I think that there is a lot of fair criticism uh, that can be leveled 
at the city's response to uh, managing and dealing with, uh, for example, um, the the homelessness uh, crisis that we already had in our city. Mm-hmm. And there is now um, two uh, battles raging on. Uh, and one of them is, of course, you know, the battle against COVID-19. And that is something that requires all hands on deck. And, and, and the authorities that, that seem to be gripped with that responsibility are taking that responsibility very seriously. But the criticisms that I had of, of government, including council, before we we moved into the global pandemic, was that I did not think that city council or any other order of government worked well together to manage our homelessness crisis that has gripped the country. So the things that we now see in terms of people falling through the cracks, those social inequities that we talked about are now more glaring than ever before. And that's on top of the 2 million plus Canadians that have lost their jobs and business owners that are barely hanging on uh, by their fingernails uh, on their on their life savings through their business. Um, we weren't necessarily very good at taking care of those who are uh, most vulnerable. And COVID-19 has, has made all of that uh, magnified and, uh, and impossible to ignore. The context of the conversation we're having now is, uh, you know, just a, a couple of days ago, we saw city bulldozing encampments uh, in various parts of the city where the street-involved people have uh, put up tents uh, or um, sort of self-made shelters uh, because... Uh, People on the front lines are saying that social distancing is not happening in the shelter system or that it's impossible to happen in the shelter system. Uh, there's been attempts to move uh, to, to house people in places like uh, hotels. But uh, what what are you seeing now? And, uh, and do you think that the city can uh, sort of ramp up its... Uh, its response to these issues that you, as you said, were underlying before the pandemic and are now just aggravated by it. Yeah, and I mean, the city has no, um, there is no runaway for the city. The city doesn't get to walk away from its responsibilities. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that the conversation has become too simplified. Uh, are you pro or against encampments? And I think it's way more complicated than that because underlying the the, the conditions that, that manufacture the encampments is the fact that you've got people who are living in poverty who don't have adequate access to affordable housing uh, and some people who actually need mental health supports those who actually cannot live independently. There are those who are living with addictions or perhaps long-term chronic illness that need to be properly treated in an, in a hospital or an institutional environment with the proper professional help that they, that they should have. And none of those supports are actually available. So, mm-hmm. The city is, is and in the neighborhoods and on the streets and in the parks is where you see the symptoms manufacture and, and sort of, you know, become so glaring. But we cannot oversimplify the debate and just talk about pro and, and, and against encampments. What we need to do is get to the structural challenges and the root causes, which therefore requires every order of government. Because what will happen now is that those who have fallen into some precarious state of homelessness, they are going to have a very difficult time getting back into housing when you have so many people who are now calling upon the government for support. Um, and the government, and I'm going to say the capital you know, government of Canada or the, or the government of, of the province, their attentions are all over the place. 
and they're not necessarily focused on the most vulnerable, which are those who are living in our streets in the ravines and sleeping under open skies. It's actually made the work that much more difficult for the city staff. Um, and of course, there can be fair criticism leveled at the city. I myself have been very critical about the fact that we haven't done enough over the past three years specifically to address the homelessness crisis. Um, but I'm also uh, intelligent enough to recognize that no municipality can actually address these long-term chronic complex care individuals on their own without the province stepping in to adequately fund mental health supports, without the federal government actively stepping in to provide capital dollars for supportive housing uh, and to accelerate all that work and service needed quickly uh, and to scale it up um, uh, regionally. It sounds like you're, you're speaking to uh, what, what some are calling the need for uh, a new deal for cities, uh, you know, more funding from various levels of government. I think the city is projecting that they're losing, because of this pandemic, something to the tune of $65 million a week, uh, which is a a sizable <laughs> blow to to the city's coffers, for sure. But but I do wonder. Uh, the city is always calling for for more funding from the various levels of government, and and fair enough. But is is that money coming, and and how quickly have you been able to speak to your your counterparts at uh, other levels of government, provincially and federally? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question. Um, so yes, I have had a chance to speak to m- my local MPP, who's Suze Morrison. Uh, obviously, she's uh, she's a new Democrat, and uh, they are they form the opposition. Um, so it's very difficult for for someone like her to to sort of bring forward her constituent concerns when it's not Toronto Centre uh, doesn't necessarily reward the progressive conservative government with seats. Um, I've had uh, really good conversations with Minister Morneau, uh, who happens to be our local MP, uh, but also the Minister of, of, uh, of Finance across the country. And, uh, and I know that, you know, he is, he is, uh, aware and gripped with the challenges that we have, not just in the local communities, but uh, as a city. Uh, one thing that always strikes me as a bit peculiar is that uh, he's he, he has such a balance to his approach that he wants to treat everyone across the country fairly. It uh, doesn't matter if it's your rural or urban community. Um, but I always say to him, take care of Toronto first. Uh, you are a Toronto resident, uh, you represent Toronto Centre, uh, and I would like you as RMP to advocate for cities, and in particular the city of Toronto and our needs. The request for a new deal has has been around for, for literally decades. I, I think back to the, to the Great Depression, when I think that there were some cities you know, uh, asking for uh, a new deal then, uh, and there's been different versions of, of what new deals mean to different cities and and governments, uh, especially at the federal level, uh, would interpret it differently. But most of the times that interpretation involves a lot of infrastructure spending, um, which is not necessarily always going to get to everyone equally. So there is a bit of a neoliberal approach to trickle-down economics that if you are able to inject a huge uh, sizable amount of money into a hard infrastructure bill, this is the Roads. Uh, this is these are the bridges. These are uh, you know hospitals and what have you. Um, then you know you will create uh, manufacturing and construction jobs, and people will be able to get back to work, make a livelihood, take care of their families, pay their bills, pay their mortgage. That doesn't work in an economy that you have 
all sorts of individuals from diversified backgrounds and and representing the wide range of people um, from all walks of life, including uh, those who are racialized, those who we have different genders, uh, because not every single construction job is going to reach every individual. And that includes even the offshoots. So any new deal will have to have a few principles of equity entirely embedded. Uh, And we want to make sure that it's not just equitable principles that are going to guide the decision-making and how we create this new deal, but it's also going to need to have people input. One of the things I said at council, which which caused me some concern, is the fact that I felt that citizens and residents of Toronto were being shut out of their local government because the standing committees weren't meeting, because they didn't get to depute uh, on the items of, of interest and importance to them in their communities. And I feel that if new deals are manufactured in a, in a room with only political actors without the citizen uh, input, then those new deals are not going to give us the ultimate benefits that we want. Right. And, uh, you know, whether or not uh, the other levels of government uh, accept this call for a new deal, you know, the, the mechanisms for, for that money to start flowing to the city and, and for these systems to be built or, or the existing systems to be upgraded we still do have the issue of, of people in tents because they have nowhere to go. So I'm just wondering what can be done in the here and now, because in the immediate situation that we find ourselves in, can the city ethically be bulldozing tents and encampments for people who don't have a place to go? So I think what's critically important for us to understand is that the city is offering individuals uh, who are sleeping outdoors uh, opportunities to come indoors. And it comes in a a range of of options, as I am told by staff. So the shelters support uh, housing administration staff, as well as the streets to home staff, have confirmed that nobody is uh, is being forced to leave. If they don't leave, they they just don't leave. What what they say is that they will be offered accommodations, and then after those accommodations are offered, then they negotiate and move forward, um, and uh, and hopefully uh, move people onto transport, take them into uh, the places that they're going, and sometimes it's private uh, apartments, uh, sometimes it's hotels, sometimes it's temporary accommodations, um, and then they they negotiate uh, from there. I think it's important for for us to recognize, and I I do think so, is that there are some individuals uh, who are living with mental illness um, and they are not always going to be able to sustain and live on their own. So that means somebody needs to bring them food. Somebody needs to to bring them clothing. Uh, our staff have met individuals who haven't bathed in in months. Uh, who have who people have said that they are living hungry. Uh, there are staff uh, who have now identified women and girls in encampments who are subject to sexual abuse and 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 ritualistic violence. Um, and that is something that's not being talked about. So if we can come to some agreement that encampments and and living in a in a tent uh, without portable washrooms without washrooms without a hand washing station without bathing uh, uh, equipment without uh, food equipment without medical supports without housing support if we can agree with that encampments does not represent secure and adequate accommodations or housing then we can work towards what can we do together to get people the supports that they need? If we dig our foot in, and I think it's it's important, if we sort of 
everybody digs in and say that the encampments uh, should should not be removed, then we actually leave people in those conditions, which is sometimes more dangerous than actually being indoors in some type of a hotel setting or some type of apartment or even uh, in a shelter that does have uh, access to toilets, access to running water, access to showers, uh, access to uh, medical support, uh, access to housing workers, uh, which will provide you with three uh, meals a day and two snacks and daily check-ins. So that means that we have to find a way to work together and we cannot oversimplify the debate, which unfortunately I, I, I think sometimes it has happened in such a, a way and it doesn't help those who are most in need. What they need, those who are most in need, is they need us to work together. They need us to accelerate all the efforts to get housing, to make sure that they can be safe from the pandemic, but they should also be able to live free from violence. And they should be able to live free uh, with uh, adequate supports in in uh, what should be safe accommodations uh, in one form or another. To switch topics, uh, another big issue that uh, came out of this pandemic is uh, people noticed more than ever before that a lot of places in in the city, uh, especially in the sort of dense downtown core, do not have sidewalk infrastructure, places for people to get from point A to point B that uh, don't involve using a car and and still practice the requisite amount of social distance. Uh, And so to address that, there's a, the city has kind of come up with this idea of active TO. And um, I think you were calling for this, this kind of, these kind of measures. Um, Lots of urbanists and activists uh, have been calling for this. What, what have we seen so far? Um, well, I've been calling for this since the end of March uh, when the lockdown first began. I recognize that the communities I represent are, are living in dense urban centers. Uh, most of us live in uh, modest-sized apartments, uh, and some people have no balconies. Uh, certainly having a front yard and backyard is, is a luxury for a downtown dweller. So for, for me, it, it actually was a no-brainer. Uh, we needed to find ways to, to create uh, and use our physical infrastructure in ways that were uh, unconventional. And that meant most likely taking uh, some of the curb lane because we saw vehicular uh, movement uh, fall uh, and uh, and we saw people struggling to physically pass one another on the sidewalk safely. Um, so I was asking for urban rethinking at the end of March. Um, I didn't necessarily um, want to undermine the, the good work of the Toronto public health officials, but I felt that we should be able to have concurrently while we were telling people to stay home and to uh, wash their hands and maintain physical distance. I felt that we should at the same time be actively uh, exploring and, and visiting the concepts of uh, active tra- transportation, but also how do you actually uh, repurpose existing infrastructure so you can actually have more equitable access. It didn't take place the, the way I had hoped. I, I thought we could accelerate that that conversation. Um, and of course, there are other cities around the world that prove that um, they were able to, to manage both uh, quite well. So I am disappointed that we didn't get there sooner. Uh, I'm pleased that there is at least some thinking now uh, at the at the the city around trying to uh, to give more public space 
to those who who need it. I think that it's it's been a very modest and incremental, uh, almost a, a timid approach, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that we've overthought it um, because we really should have been able to do this much more quickly, uh, much more cheaply. And and it and it's always the, the best outcome when you actually involve input from the community. And I think the challenge with active TO and the rollout, um, and this is not to take anything away from the hard efforts and good work of staff, because um, this is not their fault. I actually don't think that they were uh, told to be bold enough. I don't think um, that they were they were asked to be visionary. Uh, and certainly, I, I don't think that there was any community consultation uh, enough uh, because uh, we we know, given the volume of communications I, I received after the mayor made the announcement about active TO, um, we had such an onslaught of people offer us advice. Uh, they should have been asked for that advice earlier, mm-hmm. but they didn't. And so they were sort of, you know, being asked to sort of give their advice after a decision was made, um, which is not the always the best. Actually, it's never the best way for us to govern. It's never the best way for government to act. We should always involve people. Right. The city's argument against uh, these kind of uh, street closures, uh, you know, measures for for pedestrian social distancing and cycling social distancing was that they they didn't want to create an an attraction that would actually draw people out of their houses and and, and an excuse to congregate. And you've championed uh, open streets festivals, which which are kind of, you know, in happier times, they were a great time to get out and meet your neighbors and, you know, walk around. Um, And this May long weekend, under the banner of Active TO, we've seen sort of patches of the lakeshore, the Don Valley open to uh, people to, to walk and, and get some fresh air and bike. And there seems to be enough room for social distancing. But I think what advocates were calling for, and I think what you were calling for, is just space in the everyday network of city streets to, to social distance um, that we should have had regardless of the pandemic. So can, can you kind of speak to the divide where it seems like maybe the mayor, you know, the people with the emergency powers thought that people were asking for you know, just a, a way to stretch their legs when people on the street are saying, no, I need a safe way to get to my grocery store. And I think this is where we, we get back to the mindset of thinking of cycling only as a recreational use. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we know that that is not the case. Uh, those who, who don't own a car uh, travel uh, the way they need to travel. And oftentimes that's by foot on a bicycle and uh, during healthy times uh, in, in crowded transit systems. The the challenge, I, I think, I don't think the mayor was able to understand, fully understand uh, what active transportation is. I think that when it comes to open streets and creating these these network of, of, uh, of roadways, um, and it has to be a network that allows for active transportation, uh, nobody does it better in the city of Toronto than open streets. Um, we have been able to open 15 kilometers of roadway, and that has been without necessarily financial support from the city. That oftentimes has not been necessarily with any uh, political support, except for my, myself as a local councillor. Um, and it's demonstrated time and time again that the world doesn't fall apart. People come out, they know what to do, they know how to use the streets uh, with their children and their families, and they know how to move about in 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 order to foster physical activity, happiness, and health. Um, 880 cities is is you know one of the leading global experts on on these matters 
and uh, and they uh, should be consulted around uh, around this. And I know that they are now. And I I've now made the introduction uh, with our Open Streets team to transportation staff in the city because, quite honestly, um, they were you know in a, in an honest conversation without uh, media scrutiny. There was pretty much some some agreement that councilor. Uh, as city staff, we don't generally do this. So they don't execute these programs. What they do is they sit back and evaluate someone's transportation plans if they're proposing to close down the street for one event or another. The staff are not generally tasked with, nor are they usually the ones who are propelling the activation forward. So they're they're stuck in a situation where, number one, they don't generally do it. And at the same time, they didn't have community input or stakeholder expertise in informing them on what to do. Uh, if they bring Open Streets and the Open Streets team to the table, I guarantee that, number one, there will be a much more comprehensive look on how to create the, the grid and the network. I guarantee that the experiential um, experience uh, and and the values that people can can bring to the, the the physical activity on the street will be greatly enhanced, and and it has much more to do than just throwing down a few pylons. It's how you curate the experience. It's how you actually program it from beginning to end, and it's always in a contiguous network, and it allows people to actually go about their business, doing what they need to do. They do it with family, and it's incredibly accessible. Um, and they also along the Way, stop and shop. So it's, it's also a great economic driver because it actually gets people out spending the money that the small businesses are all clamoring for it in order for them to pay their rents. So there's a big difference if, if we do it right and we do it with uh, expert stakeholder uh, input uh, and we of course do it with, with citizen input um, or we do it haphazardly, which is in some cases um, us announcing something that is going to happen. And then we go about doing it with, you know, what looks like makeshift, like what looks like a makeshift project. Um, Pylons, very um, cheaply made signs that are, you know, somehow strapped to pylons. Um, Mm -hmm. It just doesn't look great. Uh, We can really do a better job. And that's what I was asking for back in March is let's start planning and working towards that. It didn't happen, but there is still time to fix it because COVID-19 is not going away tomorrow. So we know we can still work towards fixing it. But I think that it's good for the city staff to recognize what they cannot do and then to bring in the help that, that, that can make it better. All right. Well, Councillor, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, Stay safe, stay happy. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And since my chat with the councillor, even more spaces for active transportation have been approved for active TO in areas all across the city. Finally, Spacing Senior Editor Todd Harrison is a musician. So he thinks a lot about the way things sound and what's communicated by those sounds. What does the pandemic sound like? Well, take a listen. Cities are a feast for the senses. I grew up in small towns a couple of hours outside of Toronto. But we'd come to the city regularly to visit my grandma, go shopping, or watch a Blue Jays game. I cherished these visits and my sensory experience of them is what made me want to live and work where the people are. I have always especially loved the way the city sounds. 
the distinct frenetic rhythm of city dwellers and their machines, humming and whirring and clacking and clattering, have excited me for pretty much my entire life. And I'm not alone. These sounds have been an inspiration to many, most famously Leonard Bernstein, and before him, Edgar Varese, who made music of the urban cacophony. So it was noticeably eerie to many of us, I think, when, a couple of months ago, all those sounds came to a sudden stop. Though we all understood the reasons, the silence outside our windows felt disconcerting because a city at a standstill has an unmistakably dystopian feel. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think anyone was pining for rush hour traffic and the sounds that go with it. But living in a silent city just feels off, like when you accidentally put on someone else's shoes as you're leaving a party. The sudden absence of our civic hum, our urban ostinato, threw everything a bit off kilter. In the first week or two after the city fell silent, I found myself trying that old trick they used to make us do at summer camp where you cup your hands behind your ears to hear things the way a deer hears them and see how many different sounds you can make out. I definitely heard more birds, and once I swore I could hear Lake Ontario waves breaking against the shore a kilometer south of my bedroom window. Soon enough, though, those sounds were drowned out by others. People on my street banging on pots and pans in the evening and the seemingly endless parade of delivery vehicles outside my neighbor's front door. And those sounds, in turn, were woven with individual cyclists and joggers moving past my window, then people in small groups chatting as they walked. And in the past few weeks, the hiss of car wheels on asphalt has returned with regularity, and construction sites are noisy beehives again, and fewer neighbors bang on pots, and birds, well, I guess maybe some of them are still singing, but if they are, I can't hear them. Lately, I've been finding myself trying to compare the way Toronto sounds now to how it sounded a year ago. There's no question it's different. Maybe you don't miss it. But let's take a moment to build up Toronto in full sonic bloom, one layer at a time, by taking an imaginary walk to Kensington Market. Ready? Okay, here's what nothing sounds like. Oh god, I hate it. We need some sounds. The first layer of sound in Toronto's urban ostinato has to be the sounds of nature, which existed long before everything else. A bit of breeze in Norway maples. Some cardinals and robins. Now, even at the beginning of the shutdown, say on St. Patrick's Day just after sunrise, Toronto didn't sound like this. We need this next layer at a bare minimum. The sound of traffic on the nearest arterial road. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Let's go for a walk. I'm obsessed with sound, but putting this segment together forced me to admit that I rarely stop to notice the sounds I hear in my everyday life. But the vast majority of the odd occasions in which I did pay attention, more than likely occurred when I was walking. and almost definitely happened on days when I forgot my headphones. So what sounds would we most likely encounter on this walk to Kensington? Kids playing, of course, and probably a little light construction work on a nearby house. Let's add those into our urban ostinato. 
We heard it before we saw it, and now it's right in front of us. We've come to an intersection of a major arterial road, which in Toronto's case is any road that serves more than 20,000 drivers and 5,000 surface transit passengers per day and features access control, signalized intersections, higher speed limits, and, crucially for our civic hum, no restrictions on large trucks. This sound quickly dominates all others, and is probably the most noticeable in its absence, a theory I can easily test right now. College, Dundas, Spadina, and Bathurst streets are all classified as major arterials, so unless you live basically right inside Kensington Market, you can't get to it without crossing at least one of these streets. And since construction is a Toronto inevitability, and lots of it happens on arterials, let's add a bit of condo-in-progress sounds as we cross. Past the arterial, we begin to hear the foundations of our soundtrack once again, but before long, the sounds of the market reach our ears. Kensington in full thrust is quintessential Toronto and the ultimate sensory feast. Here, in the heart of the market, is the best place to put on your dear ears and listen as deeply as you can. Listen past the sounds of people on the street. Hear around the clatter of construction. Fly over the arterials and the hiss and flange of traffic. Can you hear it? Someone on our left is playing guitar in their apartment. And to the right, a couple is having a passionate conversation on a balcony. A bike bell dings two streets over. And the cardinals and robins have been singing this whole time as the breeze shakes the verdant spring leaves. And on our southern edge, wave after Lake Ontario wave hits the shore. And if you'd like to hear Todd's music, including his recent EP, check out Trucks Leaving on SoundCloud. I'll leave you with this. While I've been critical of some of the city's early responses to this crisis, and continue to be, it's made rapid progress in the past month. A lot of it comes from the imagination and hard work of some seemingly tireless advocates, and local government seems to be taking notice. But I do wonder if a lot of these measures will remain when we slowly transition back to some version of normal, or if it's all just a treat to tide us over and distract us from the overt horribleness of the current situation. Keep the pressure on. It's good pressure, and productive. People demanded space to social distance, and it's happening. Bike lanes will be built as an alternative to the TTC, which has warned it won't be able to ensure social distance when many people return to work. It's not perfect, but it's something, and it could go further. More importantly, I think politicians are more receptive to the ongoing housing and homelessness crisis than ever before. It's time for some hard truths and some fast action. 
In the past two city council sessions, new modular homes for those in need and phase two of the Housing Now initiative were approved. Council also voted for 25 kilometers of new bike lanes, including an east-west corridor connecting Bloor and the Danforth, and, importantly, lanes well beyond the downtown. Deputy mayors Stephen Holliday and Denzelman and Wong were the only lonely holdouts. Maybe the gravity of the situation has awakened something at City Hall. With a few unfortunate exceptions, the people there are working together, working quickly, and listening to people's needs. It's a trend I hope continues, but that only happens if you keep making yourselves heard. Anyway, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell the people in the painted circles across from you in the park, provided you keep your damn distance. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If there's anything you'd like to hear, anything you'd appreciate us digging into, or if you have a story about city life during COVID-19, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca. There'll be new content on there to keep you all informed. Our store at 401 Richmond Street West is now open for curbside pickup and window shopping. Check spacingstore.ca for business hours or mail orders. In the meantime, find a park that is in Bellwoods and enjoy. Cheers.